listening to the Infinity Festival Hollywood Podcast. I'm John Gaunt. The Infinity Festival Hollywood Podcast features top creators and technologists as they explore how to push storytelling to the next level. Now, these sessions from the 2021 Infinity Festival Hollywood are presented by Z by HP, NVIDIA, XLA, and co-presented by Qualcomm. The next edition of the Infinity Festival Hollywood will take place November 2nd through November 5th, 2022 in Hollywood's Vinyl District. Visit www.infinityfestival.com to learn more about this year's event. This show takes a broad look at the changing face of media. Barbara Marshall from HP speaks with Frank Sherma, the president of Radical Media, and Daniel Tibbetts, the CEO of Smosh, about how top-tier media companies will thrive in a world of multiple platforms and unlimited choices for content. The trio explore common themes across platforms, distribution, audiences, and economics to provide the audience with a roadmap for competing in a media environment based around abundance rather than scarcity. All right, all right, all right. We are back live at the Infinity Festival, everybody. Let's hear it. And a big hello to our virtual audience. I know many of you are watching online and we're enjoying all the comments, so keep on watching. I want to bring up three of my favorite people in the whole world. Well, I have a lot of favorite people. These are the three right now. But... <laughs> <laughs> but they are really at the center of the storm of what's happening in production in terms of creating content in the real world using all of the great technology that we have been talking about and really having a realistic approach to what's real and what's not real. So let's bring up the fabulous Barbara Marshall, our Z by HP partner, Frank Shermer from Radical Media, and Daniel Tibbetts from Smosh. Let's have a big Infinity Festival welcome. Woo! Thanks, Laurie. And thank you to Frank and Daniel. I'm very excited to have this conversation. As a little preamble, I think, as you know, I'm, I'm from, you know, a traditional broadcast background. And, uh, you know, 30 years ago, we started virtual sets and it took a while to take on. And here we are, virtual production, um, definitely a, a part of our landscape. Um, VR as well, 30 years ago, people were talking about it, a little bit skeptical. We've, we've seen adoption certainly in other industries, but I would argue that we don't really see VR as part of mainstream entertainment. But we've seen tons of other new platforms and, and channels opening up. And what I'm curious about, talking to you two, you two have made that leap from the traditional media background to a profitable new new media um, environment. So that's what we're going to be talking about. But let's, first of all, for everybody, let's start with a little, I call it a potted history of, of your background, a sort of summary, condensed version of where you've come from and where you are now. And Frank, let's start with you. Sure. Thanks. Thanks, Barbara. Thanks. Glad to be here and uh, glad to be talking about new media, although I don't think it's new. Anymore. Very old term. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's media. Um, so I think uh, where I started from is uh, in the advertising world, uh, making television commercials. And at one point I had the largest uh, company that produced more television commercials around the world with offices all around the world. 
uh, producing uh, television commercials. And, uh, you know, about 10, 15 years ago, my partner called me and said, uh, you need to buy this thing called TiVo. We're fucked. And uh, we ended up, uh, I ended up getting number 39 TiVo or something like that. And I had a lifetime uh, membership in it. I thought it was my lifetime. It was the lifetime of the box. So that sort of changed everything. And we realized that we, as producers of television commercials, had to pivot into other arenas in doing other things if we were gonna survive as a company, as a production company. So we started moving into television, we started moving into music videos, we started moving into t to movies, we started moving into live events. Uh, we also started looking at things, as you said, in VR. We did a bunch of projects in VR. Uh, funny, just listening to Joseph Gordon-Levitt and his partner talk about what they did in terms of bringing the communities together. About 10, 12 years ago, we did a project with Johnny Cash's estate called the Johnny Cash Project, which was an animated uh, piece that was put together with people doing animated pieces all around the world, and then we curated it into one music video. So we've been doing this kind of stuff for a very long time, realizing that things had to change, and we had to change in order to be moving forward as, as media kept changing. That's a, a great yeah, sort of intro into this uh, pivotal moment conversation. But before we dig into that, Daniel, do you want to give us a quick... Absolutely. Thank you. Uh, first off, uh, shout out to everybody who's watching at home. Uh, I have to say being here in person is a little nerve wracking, but at the same time, it is really just fantastic to be back, to see everyone, to be able to talk to people. Uh, it feels good to see everything opening. So hopefully all of you that are at home will eventually come out and be with us next year. Uh, quick background. So I've had a very diverse background across a lot of different platforms. I won't go through the, the, the resume. You can check that out online or LinkedIn or wherever. Uh, but there's some really key elements to it. My uh, experience has expanded from syndication to broadcast to cable to mobile to digital, um, you know, to social. And there's some common themes across all of that for why uh, I've been able to navigate that. One, understanding the platform, right, or the distribution, right? And then who's the audience that's really consuming that platform or that distribution? And then what are the economics behind it, right? What is the finance uh, that, that basically dictates the the type of content that can be, that can be created uh, so that you can get to a level of profitability at a certain time. And then of course, most important is then what is the creative that works best for that audience, that works best on that platform, that is absolute high quality for uh, the economics that you can produce for. And so even though a lot of people talk about, um, oh, you've only been in broadcast, you've only been in digital, I get that, but there's a theme that goes across to all of them that I've had an opportunity to experience in my career. So Daniel, can you sort of pinpoint a, a pivotal moment when you really, I keep saying pivotal, it's pivotal, um, when you realized something fundamental was changing and that your business had to change? Yeah, I, I would say my moment was uh, a very long time ago when I was at Fox and um, we were, you know, in, in traditional television, and we were hearing about mobile content, uh, you know, really in South Korea at the time, right? And, but it was not in the US. We're talking 2002, 2003. And I actually had gotten a Nokia 6600 out of the UK. It didn't work in the US. Um, they weren't allowed in the US, but somebody had brought me one. I convinced some AT&T executives uh, to get it to work on their network. Uh, and they did. And, and actually, I remember the uh, hearing back that some high-level executives at AT&T were very um, 
shocked that I had this phone and actually got it to work. Um, but it started putting content on it. And uh, it was really one of the first moments where uh, I was able to show people things that I was producing, but I was showing them on my phone. Uh, and again, this was early 2003. Um, that was the moment that I went, oh, distribution is completely gonna change. The wall garden, syndication, broadcast television, everything, that's over. And I remember after um, uh, doing some of the early mobile stuff with Verizon when they launched Vcast, going to my boss at Fox and saying, I'm gonna make television for cell phones. And he sat back, he's a good friend, he sat back and he just shook his head and he said, what are you doing? You know, you have a great career in television, what are you doing? And I said, everyone's gonna be watching television on their cell phones. I was right, thank goodness. <laughs> Glad my wife said, yeah, go do that, mm, okay. <laughs> um, but that was the moment where I realized just the industry was never gonna be the same, it's never gonna go back. And you really have to understand how, again, distribution, technology, and creative work together. It's one thing you have to think about. And, and Frank, you've kind of hinted at what that pivotal moment was for you. Did it again. Uh, <laughs> do you want to? Yeah, that, that was that was one of our pivotal moments because, you know, as as I'm listening to Daniel talk, I'm I'm realizing, you know, in in 1993 we changed the name of our company uh, from a traditional sort of commercial production company, and we put the at sign in front of our name. It was at Radical Media before anybody had emails. We had a young uh, cousin of my partner who went to NYU and took the first new media class at NYU. And he came back to give us a whole, this is what's going on. And this is, and we, and he, my partner looked at the at sign. He said, what's that? What's that? He said, oh, that's going to be internet protocol. Everybody's going to need one of those. And this was in 93 or something like that. So we changed our name to at Radical Media at the time. At the time, we thought it would just put us at the front of everything alphabetical, because it did. So our name always came up first. But it really was the prescient piece of what was going on in our industry. The next thing I realized that we were doing, which was, you know, what Daniel's talking about, but it was way over what I was doing with television commercials. My partner was starting to put magazines online. We were coding magazines. We put the original George magazine uh, online, uh, and then we were putting all these other magazines online so people could read them on the internet. And we were like, okay, what the hell? I was like, you're boss <laughs> going, what the hell are you doing? Why are we spending money on this? What's going on? Why aren't we going in this direction? But he was right. He saw all these clues of what was going to happen in our industry and what, how things were going to be distributed. And because of that, we were a little bit ahead of the game. So there's a, a common theme here. And I'm curious, I, Frank, you obviously were willing to listen to people that were telling you about these clues. Daniel, you saw these clues. Can you talk a little bit about, like, why did you know, what, what made you believe this was something and not just a blip? Yeah, and I think, I think that goes to um, something you said at the beginning, which is timing, right? It's in, are you too early? Are you too late? Are you hitting it just right? I would say in mobile, I was too early, right? At that, at that moment, for sure, because there were no smartphones and uh, it was before even Vcast had launched. So anything you did in mobile was uh, a downloadable app and that was only about four, three, four percent of the total market at the time was playing games. So video wasn't, was pretty non-existent. Um, I think for, for me, it's always about, uh, as a matter of fact, uh, um, uh, Joseph Gordon-Levitt, who was just sitting here talking about the creator community. 
it was that moment when I realized that the minute those walls of distribution broke down, that we became, we in Hollywood that were creating the content and controlling what the, the voices were that people wanted to, to, to listen to, was about to crumble. That the minute you could open it up to uh, the masses, to society, to be able to have their own voice, their own point of view, create their own stories, that we would, we as Hollywood would lose that control. And so I looked forward in my mind and said, if that's the true, I, if that's true, I don't want to be sitting at someplace like Fox 10 years from now, because that's going to be less relevant um, to what and how people are viewing content. Uh, that, that's really what sparked it for me, which probably more um, uh, self-preservation of where do I need to be sitting in the future to make sure I'm a part of that new content creating community and distribution. Well, it worked. <laughs> Back on wood. Okay. Yeah. So despite the growth of, you know, YouTube and TikTok and all the other video content consumed via, you know, um, social media, we still see massive audiences for major drama and feature films and, you know, Apple and Netflix can attest to this. So what, how does this, how do you as content creators navigate this? Or is it a case of choose your platform and, and know your audience? I, I mean, I'd say for what we look at is it's about storytelling. And if you're going to tell a good story, you're going to figure out where that story can live. Because at, at this point in time, we have so many different places that we can go to all across the board. It's a great time for creators and it's a great time for producers. And for us, if we stick with the mantra of great storytelling that people wanna see, you will find a place for that to live. And I, I don't think you necessarily look at where you want it to live first. I think if you stick with a good story, that will lead itself. Got it, interesting. Yeah, I, I, I agree with that. I think, I think as a creator, you have to um, also pick kind of the, the area you want to go into. There's so much great content out there, just like you said. I mean, Netflix and Amazon and all the streaming, you got, uh, you know, you, you still have great stuff on broadcast, great stuff in cable. You've got great stuff on SVOD, AVOD, and all the different social channels, which I also break up and not YouTube. YouTube's not a social channel, but YouTube as a distribution AVOD platform, along with TikTok and uh, Instagram um, and Twitch. Each one of those is a different mindset and a different expertise of content creation. And I, and, and I think that uh, where a lot of companies still fail, and I know we've talked about this for the last 10 years, is trying to repurpose. But there's still a lot of repurposing going on. And the truth is, at the end of the day, you have to have dedicated mindset and resources and creative uh, thought to each one of these individual or platforms. And if you're not willing to invest in them, if you're not willing to work with people who really are native to that particular uh, platform, uh, you know, I think you're going to fail. Uh, but a lot of companies aren't willing to put the investment in. And, and a lot of companies aren't seeing where the revenue is. Um, and if they're not, or if they don't see the value for some other reason, maybe building audience or in calling it an expense, then stay out of it. Um, and, and, but to your point, th those are all the opportunities available to us today. And, and we should be maximizing as many of them as we can. So how did you like devise Smosh? I mean, was that a case of choosing the platform and then the content? Or as Frank said, was that content first and then choose the right platform? Yeah. Well, I joined, I just joined uh, Smosh as a CEO in the last uh, 
35 days, so I'm pretty new. Um, but why did, why did I go in that direction? Um, I, you know, prior to that, I was the COO of one company, the CCO of another company. I was, you know, doing a lot of things. But when Smosh approached me, what was, what was fascinating about it is one, it's a brand that's lived on uh, YouTube since the beginning. The company's been around 16, 17 years, and it is truly one of the last major comedy brands that are in the YouTube uh, environment. Um, and so you have something really incredible with that company, which is you have likable talent. The talent is extremely talented. They're very likable. People love watching them. So then you have an audience and you have mass distribution. And when I look at those three things, that's already built. It's already been in place. I didn't build that. What I'm looking at is, okay, now how do you supersize it? How do we look at it and take what they already do so great and expand content distribution, right? And again, when we think about fast channels and we think about AVOD and we think about all the platforms that are available to us and, and what that content is, there's clearly an audience out there that's not experiencing it. And then when I think about AVOD and advertising, and again, they're, they're, you know, and we're seeing it, you're seeing it over the last 10 years, but now it's become, I think, more relevant. Advertisers really are rethinking how they're working within content, uh, how they're working with content producers. And so there's a huge opportunity to that. And then, and, and really most important to me, and I experienced this with El Rey Network, it's about providing a platform for new voices, right? With El Rey Network, where I was the president and GM working with Robert Rodriguez, we were creating a platform for English language Latinos in front of the camera and behind the camera, right? I'm not that voice, I'm not that content creator, but we gave that platform uh, to uh, um, uh, a group and an audience that needed that voice. I think it's the same here with Smosh. I think there is a, a place where comedy and diverse voices and young voices need to be heard that are, are struggling to build their own audience. Right? So if we can be that platform and we can be that connective tissue to a new audience to them and help those careers grow and go off and do amazing things, that's, I think, the, the role that a lot of us, um, uh, I'll say, uh, um, senior executives in Hollywood, that's where our place is today. It's not, I don't want to be the content creator. I want to be the, the, the resources to the content creators so that their voices get heard. The enabler. Yeah. And, and Frank, what, what about you? How, how have you kind of adjusted to the landscape and, and, and taken advantage of these new platforms? Well, I think it's, it's, I think it's interesting because, um, you know, as he was talking about SVOD and AVOD, and if we, if we look at how I looked at when I got TiVo and I thought I was completely screwed in the advertising world, which was basically paying for our electricity and keeping all our lights on and doing everything as we were trying to create television things, everybody was, uh, I remember picking up the New York Times a couple of years after I got TiVo and it said, is the television commercial dead? And I'm like, oh, okay, we're really screwed here. But what's happened is uh, now with AOVOD and with everybody paying to see commercials on these streaming platforms, it's just increased that world. But what it's also done in that world is it's made those advertisers go, okay, I don't want to just do a television commercial. Now I want to be involved in a show. And it started at first with them going, okay, we'll just do product placement. Put my car in that thing or put my phone in that thing. And then it started to be, well, let's create things. And, and luckily we've had a lot of 
years of working with advertisers. So a lot of them have come to us to sort of sit and say, okay, let's create a television show. We created many television shows with Nike, with Target, with, with uh, Apple, with all sorts of different places that wanted to do things outside of the norm. And, uh, and that's worked really well for us across the board. So it's kind of driven creativity and, and brought brands and creativity together and blurred the lines between the, the two um, activities. Yeah, to a certain extent. It's allowed, it's allowed advertisers to try to reach, oh, look, they're trying to reach consumers. I mean, if we go back to when my parents watched TV, they actually were very grateful to advertisers because they brought them free TV, right? We now have a generation, my kids, everybody else's kids, and, and most of the people that work for me that don't want to pay for it. Why do I have to pay for that? That should be free. I can get that online, or I can get music online, or I can get content online. So advertisers had to look in different places, and they started looking at entertainment to start reaching their audience. So an angle that I'm super interested in is the, what, what I think is a dichotomy around production values. We see ever more complex visual effects, the drive towards 4K, 8K, HDR on the big screen. And then we've got all this content being consumed um, on the small screen, often user-generated. Is it fair to, to, to call it user-generated now? Um, what sort of production values are you seeing in the small screen and, and how do you square that with the, this drive for um, the big screen just getting higher and higher production values? Well, I, I actually, um, quality is subjective, right? And quality is subjective based on the platform and the, the consumer themselves. So I, I've definitely in my career had a lot of people say digital content is less than, mobile content is less than, but it's not to the viewer, right? So if a viewer expects to get a, a particular cinematic experience in the theater, you then you have to deliver that. If they expect a, a certain experience on Netflix, then you have to deliver that. If they're expecting a, an experience on YouTube, then deliver that, right? A lot of people will look at um, some of the social media platforms and they'll try to try to create, again, uh, um, quality, right? Or value in production. And the truth is it doesn't work and it doesn't need to work and you don't necessarily need to do it because that's not what the audience, audience expects. And when they look at, let's say, Smosh content, Smosh content doesn't have the quote perceived quality of Netflix, but to its 40 million subscribers, it does because they're watching it for hours a day and they're enjoying that content. And that's quality from that perspective. You know, what, what I would say is when you're looking at all the things that we're doing in digital effects and all the things, I still go back to storytelling. And I still go back to telling the great story. Now, if the effects and all the digital things that we're doing make that story better, then that's where it should exist. But a lot of times it doesn't need to be there. You know, if you can tell that story that would work on Smosh, that would work on Netflix, you know, some of them will need these effects because maybe the story isn't as interesting or maybe it needs to be elevated in some way. But I don't think that that's going to be the forefronter of why we're doing things. Again, making an audience feel something or be emotionally attached to something or laugh at something or cry at something, that's what you want. And if you find that and if effects and does that helps that, then great, that's what it's there for. And that's exactly what we heard yesterday from, um, there were a couple of influence on a panel, influencers on a panel the other day, and they were saying exactly the same thing. The level of engagement that they have with their 10 million TikTok followers, it's a, it's a real community. Um, so okay. that, I guess that's the common 
common theme. Yeah, I, and I always say, um, you know, everyone's talking about Squid Games right now. Um, and so one of the things I would say is that show could not have aired in the US 10 years ago, maybe even five years ago, right? You didn't, none of the networks uh, would, would put on a subtitle show. That just didn't exist. And they certainly didn't take foreign product and then air it in the US, right? It was always the other way around. Something like Netflix has allowed uh, that product to come into the US and be a massive hit, even though it was produced in a, another country, even though it's subtitled. So that show, quality-wise, I think would not have worked in the US at the time. But today, great show, great story, right? High quality, and it broke all the barriers because distribution allowed it to do so. Um, and, and that quality now is the standard. And in terms of audiences, are they, is the audience now fragmented and has its sort of platform of choice? Or do you see the audience, Smosh or El Rey, mixing across all the different platforms? Do they still watch the big screen? I know the last two years, that's tough, but um, are they watching Netflix, but then they're on YouTube and then they're on TikTok? Or, or do you think the audience has fragmented? I, I mean, I would say if you think about whenever you go to a dinner party or whenever you go out with friends, if you still do that these days, what is the thing that you all talk about at one point? What are you watching? Oh yeah, what, what are you watching? And that's because there's so much stuff out there and there are so many things out there. You're always asking it. That's how I find out what I'm watching besides talking to my kids, my wife, the people who work with me, friends. And I think I find the shows that I know that's how I find the shows. And that's how a lot of my, you know, contemporaries find their shows. I do think, and he can probably answer that more. There are people that if they're smoshers, is that what, is that, is that the word smoshers? No, nah, but, it, oh. but we, 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 we're going to trademark it now. <laughs> it is now. <laughs> but if they were there, then they start looking at that content. But my guess would be if someone said to them, have you seen Squid Games? And they go to their parents to get the Netflix codes to get in, then they'd watch it. Yeah. Uh, that, I, it, I mean, everyone has a very diverse taste as far as their, their viewing habits. Um, I think it comes down to what's good, right? What, what appeals to them. Um, but you're right. You know, someone who's watching TikTok for an hour can turn over and watch YouTube. I think one of the things that, um, and again, this has all been discussed for years, but we're starting to, to change our thinking about it is uh, young millennials and, and uh, Zs are, they're not watching the big screen, but that's not true. There actually are, right? As a matter of fact, YouTube and its, its OTT application is, is I think more popular than like Netflix at this point. Like if you really look at the data, tons of people are watching YouTube on the big screen. Sure, they're watching it on their phone, but it, it, it you know, it's, um, it's just the option to be able to watch it where you want, right? So, so we don't have to get too uh, obsessed about that. It's really about, okay, make sure you're everywhere, let them watch it, and make sure you're putting great product out. So, question about what's gonna stick around, and you know, I talked about some of the things that took a while to uh, take off. We've seen and didn't really succeed with 3D television. Um, with, with the landscape being so diverse, what do you see sticking? Where are the economics? Are the two related? Daniel, do you want to go, Frank? I, mean, <laughs> I don't want to go first. Uh, 
It's, it's like they'll look back at this five years from now and say, he was wrong. Uh, <laughs> I always like those jobs. I remember I met someone who is, was a futurist at Disney, and his job was to predict what was going to be you know, big five years out. And I thought, wow, that's amazing. And then I said, how long is your contract? And he said, three years. You can't lose. That's a great job. I want that job. <laughs> Every three years, you just keep moving. Um, anyway, uh, yeah, I think, um, you know, we've, we've talked about being too early in certain sectors. Um, I think VR, I saw a lot of people go early and spend a lot of money, but the economics weren't there. Um, I think VR is to, you know, continue to grow. I think it's more gaming than it is storytelling at this point for me not offending anyone out there, uh, hopefully. Uh, and then AR to me is a little more interesting to look at just because we can bridge uh, the real world and the VR world in unique ways. You can talk to that more than I can. One of the things that is super buzzed right now, everybody loves to talk about, um, that I think we do need to pay attention to is when we talk about the, the blockchain, when we talk about specifically NFTs and content on the blockchain. And the reason, and again, uh, um, Joseph, Joseph Gordon-Levitt was talking about create a community and creators being able to be paid for them. And I think from an art standpoint, what's fascinating about that idea or that technology is you can create something, right? I can, I can create something and sell it to Frank, right? And I sold it for a hundred bucks, I got a hundred bucks. It becomes a value. He then sells it for a thousand dollars I still get something, right? And that's never existed for content for creators in that way. And I think that's really important, especially as we're, as more and more people are being, are becoming content creators, the question becomes, how can they monetize it? Um, and, and it goes back to what you were saying. It's, it's, are we too early or too late is to me based on, is there real money to be made either today or within a period of time that I'm going to be able to recoup my investment so that I can keep going in that space? And I think a lot of people will jump out and say, this is going to be big. I'm going to spend $10 million, but uh, they don't have the business model that goes towards it. And by the way, very uh, um, successful companies that do that and people that do that. Not my thing. I live more in the, okay, I know exactly uh, what this platform is, what the content is, what the economics are. Now let's create to that. Let's be, let's be within the universe of what's real and grow with it over time. I think the thing that's interesting because there are certain things that are so cyclical and when you've been doing things as long as I've been doing things, you start to see the cycles come back again. And a lot of what you're talking about where people are spending all this money on something, not understanding what the economic model of it is or how they're going to make money, it goes back to the beginning of the dot-com days when all this money was being raised for all these, these websites and places that no longer exist, but were spending millions of dollars trying to advertise on the Super Bowl so that they'd get more people to their website, but there was no economic model on how they were gonna make money. And they all went out of business. Not all of them, but most of them went out of business. They spent all their money on getting people to their website, but once they got them there, they didn't know how to make money off them. So it didn't work. So, so that cycle I see. I see. To go back to your point about you know, AR and VR, you know, I agree with you with VR, and you know, I have you know three kids that went from teenage years to to young adulthood, and that's a gaming platform. I see. I I, I think, and maybe that's me, but I think that entertainment, so much of it is the social part of it as well. You go into a movie theater with people. You want to hear other people laugh. You want to hear other people gasp. Even when you're watching television with you know, your significant other or a friend or something, there's a social element about it. When you have the headsets on, you lose that social element. So I don't know if it'll ever be a mainstream 
sort of entertainment thing. I think things like uh, the things that Chris Milk are doing with the company Within, which is a which is an exercise whole video that he's put together that you put on your goggles and you go through these things. It's very successful and it'll do really, really well for him. I think AR is going to have more of a of an entertainment value. I mean, you know, we created something with Justin Timberlake at the very beginning of when we were figuring out AR. And, you know, if it was at a more advanced stage that we did it right now, I can have Justin Timberlake in the middle of this audience with all of us. And he could be talking about what, you know, what we're doing. That's a little more interesting because, again, I think it brings people together. And I'm still about bringing people together. Yeah. And the big question there is is now, right, everybody's, uh, everybody, I say everybody, um, companies are investing billions of dollars in the metaverse, right? To do exactly what you're saying. How do I take that experience and make it a community experience in which I actually live and buy things and have a house and buy property? That's the big jump that everybody's trying to get to. And, and um, again, I, when I hear uh, rumblings of other companies or other individuals saying, oh, I'm running to that space, I would say, well, yes, be aware and be prepared, but unless you have $10 billion, I wouldn't, I wouldn't, I wouldn't run too fast. It's, it's, we're a little early, right? It's coming, but it's super, super early. I guess it's the uh, risk-reward equation, isn't it? Yeah. Um, okay, just switching gears a little bit. I'm, you know, dear, a topic dear to our heart is the remote working environment we found ourselves in over the last couple of years. Um, many people were already working remotely. It's, as we know, it's just uh, COVID accelerated it. How, has that affected the two of you, your companies? Um, and do you see it sticking? Well, I think, I, I think it really helped us in the beginning when nobody was traveling and no one was going anywhere. And we figured out ways to send these kits into people's homes that we could then record them and actually have somebody working back in their home or in a small office and being able to direct what it was going to be. It really started, uh, and I hate to go back there, but it started with commercials. Commercials were the first ones that came back um, uh, to start because entertainment was still figuring it out in the TV studios. And then when we started doing our documentaries and our documentary shows and our movies, we were still doing some of that from a remote point of view. I had a director, who does a lot of documentary series on Netflix, and we were doing a, a thing together, and he said, yeah, I'm interviewing this guy in Florida, a one-off guy in Florida, and instead of flying seven of us down there, because I can't, I just did it from my house. And he goes, I'll never fly down there again. I'll never go down for, a one, for one person for one interview. It just didn't make financial sense when it turned out to work out so well from him doing it from his home. Now, if he was going down there and there was a lot of other things that he was going to shoot and there were a lot of people and there were a lot of things that needed to, to be talked about, then he would have gone down. But to interview one person to go to that place, I think that's gonna stick across the board. Huge environmental um, impact there as well. And I've heard other people talking about the environmental benefits of not trogging across LA and all the traffic just to have one meeting and you times that by London and Montreal and all the other New York and all the other media centers. So D Daniel, are you seeing any kind of environmental awareness in our business? Yeah, absolutely. I think the, the uh, similar story when, um, when all this happened, El Rey still needed to produce 120 hours of shows. 
and we had to do it remote. And, and it actually turned out to be a really great experience. Uh, certainly economically it was good, but also we figured it out and we created compelling shows and they aired and they're still airing, so that's, that's great. Um, when you think about um, sketch comedy, uh, YouTube programming, you need to be together, right? That, that doesn't work. <laughs> so, so I think what's, what's happened and, and all of us are doing, and we're doing it here in this conference. Some people are at home, some people are here. It's really thinking differently about the work environment. I, I fully admit I was always uh, the believer in, hey, we're all in at 8 a.m., right? We're all working, we're all here at the, the office. I don't have those beliefs anymore. I know that there are, are absolute reasons why we all have to be together creatively, functionally, operationally. And then there's also a lot of reasons why we can be separate. So as I look forward, I think about, um, you know, and, and it has to be organized, but certain days where people get to work from home, certain times people get to work from home, certain times people need to be together, but you really need to be all together. The, the, the thing that I'm seeing, which is um, kind of the next problem we'll face, is the separation of the two. Some people that are in a meeting that are not there via whatever technology, other people in the room, that's not working. Um, or uh, I even find myself, I've got Zoom calls all day, but I have to now get to a certain location. And so I'm doing a Zoom call in the car. That's not safe. I don't recommend that. Don't do it. Uh, but this, the, the conflict of the two are now starting to meet. So the Zoom call I'm doing when I leave here in the car, I shouldn't do. <laughs> I'm just recommending you're, you shouldn't. <laughs> I'm sure I we can it. find you a meeting room. It, it, it's funny you say that because we have a sketch comedy show that I do for AMC. And we were writing and we had, you know, 12 writers in a writer's room, but I couldn't put them in a writer's room, right? But I didn't want to do it on Zoom because we were writing songs, we were doing comedy, we were writing scripts. And I'm like, okay, how are we going to do this? So basically what I did was I took one of my parking lots at my office and I put a, a small tent overhead, but it was completely open. And I set it up outside in our parking lot and everybody tested and everybody wore masks and were six feet apart, but we got it done and it was funny. And I went out there and you can hear laughter and you, you didn't have that, I'll call it, you know, Zoom delay. Was that funny? Was that not? It had to be in person. Otherwise, I don't think it would have worked. But I agree with you. I think we're going to both. And I do not like some people on Zoom and some or blue jeans or whatever we're doing uh, and, and people being in the office. It doesn't work. Yeah, it's, uh, having worked in the global environment for many years, that, that was the situation pre-COVID as well. Very hard to have meeting protocol and in, be inclusive when people are, are not there in person. Okay, so um, as we uh, wrap up, we've got a few more minutes. I'd like to look to the future. And, um, you know, what's the most exciting opportunity that you see? At the same time, what concerns you? What's your biggest headache? Well, I think, you know, I think the fact that what, what's exciting is how many platforms that we have and the ability to, to produce great content for all these different platforms. At the same time, the concern is we have so many of these platforms and how many platforms are going to stay in existence and how much are, is everyone going to pay? You know, how many of these pay platforms are gonna happen? Uh, I think a lot of the AVOD are gonna stay around because they're cheaper and, and, and they're smart about it. They're not playing five minutes worth of commercials like on a network TV. So people are right, okay, I can listen to two minutes worth of stuff. But I am 
concerned. I'm, I'm excited right now because I think there's so many places that we can produce things for, but I'm also saying, okay, what's going to happen in five years when these consolidate and these consolidate and these consolidate, and then we're dealing with really only four entities that are buying things, whether it's, you know, Disney or Viacom or, you know, you know it's just going to be four groups, even though they're going to have all these arms. So that becomes the concern there for me. Oh, I think, I think, absolutely. And I think there is going to be a lot of consolidation. The thing I love about consolidation is they always let something drop or they always miss something. And that's where the next new great company comes from. And that's what I always try to keep an eye on. Where, where, what are they missing, right? Because I can't compete with them. It go, you know, again, I, I, I've had people approach me and say, oh, I'm going to start an SVOD. And my first question is, do you have $10 billion? Right? No, I have 10 million. Well, then don't start an SVOD. That's probably a bad idea. Um, uh, I think if you, you can't compete on that level, then you have to look for where the opportunities are around it. Uh, the thing that, that I keep looking for, and, and I think about TikTok a lot. I love TikTok. I think TikTok's a, an amazing platform that learns your behavior so fast and then delivers exactly what you want on a consistent basis in just the right amount of time, and you get stuck there for hours. Um, that's only been around a few years now. Like that just showed up out of nowhere. I mean, I know the evolution of Musical.ly and da, 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 but it really came out of nowhere. And so there's going to be another one of those, right? We can't just assume, oh, well, there's TikTok, so we're done. We're not done. We're never going to be done. And now everyone's trying to copy, right, TikTok. We've got YouTube shorts. Uh, you know, we've got Facebook and Reels. Like everybody's jumping on that and we'll have some winners and losers. But we're always going to look to the next evolution specifically around how are we engaging uh, again, with a mass community to be the creators, to have a voice, to come forward and entertain. Um, you know, TikTok, uh, I keep running into people who five months ago, you didn't know who they were. Today, they have millions of followers, right? And, and they're quote celebrities from that standpoint. Uh, so we in the traditional media business always have to be prepared, not getting in too early, but being prepared that when new technology arises, that we are prepared to deliver the right type of content to it. And in case anybody was wondering, today is a bones day. Do you know the bones and the no bones? Okay, look it up on TikTok. Okay. It's today's a bones day, which means that we should be out there working hard, doing well. It's a little 13 year old pug that the owner lifts up every single day. And if it stays up on its bones, it's a bone day, get out there and work. But most of the time it just collapses because it's so old. And then it's a no bones day, relax, stay in bed a little bit longer, do that. The, this has gone crazy how many people are watching this on TikTok. And so, and so simple, specific, targeted, it's, it's insane, it's incredible. So what about oldies like me, who are still more or less spending their time watching long form content? Is, is that gonna stick around? Is there always gonna be an audience for long form? Um, or is it just for, for oldies? I, I've, look, you know, I watched the evolution of my kids who, you know, as teenagers sat in their rooms, either on their phone or on their computer, watching things that they were watching. I remember at one point, all four of our network, Netflix things were on in my house. I couldn't watch something because everybody was on something on, the, on their computer or on their phone and stuff. Now, when they come back, from uh, you know being away for a while and come back and spend the week with us, they're now downstairs on the big TV, watching Ted Lasso or watching a bigger thing or you know even watching sports. They've they've progressed into longer form things. Uh, again, I think it's still going to be about storytelling. If there's good stories to tell, long form people are going to be attracted to it. 
I mean, Ted Lasso is a great example, isn't it? I think, I think um, again, well said. Um, I think uh, if you, and the very first presenter today talked about how like Netflix had one original show in 2012 and now they have 400, right? But the total scripted shows in I think 2019 were six, 700 were being created. Uh, just a crazy number. Um, that's not gonna change. To me, this is absolutely the golden age of television. These last few years, you're seeing better stuff, better quality, uh, uh, you know, the, 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 the budgets are, just going up, right? Because the, the economics are there to justify a quality of television that we have never seen. So I don't, I don't see that going away. I call it the platinum age of television. Platinum age. Oh, I like that. Thank you. I'm going to use take that. that and smashers. Yes. Okay, deal. <laughs> we'll trade. And you talked about consolidation. Um, I hear so many people complaining about how many subscriptions they've got, how much money they're spending each month on these subscriptions. And then at the same time, I see the broadcasters, you know, how are they evolving? Is there a role for the, for the aggregator, which kind of was what broadcasting was originally about, taking the best of, of, of the best and putting it all together in one place? How do you see the future um, in that regard? Well, I think that's become the fast channel, right? So the, the, the biggest thing with the uh, consolidation is that um, anyone who has a library is holding on to it if they have their own platform, right? Or they're able to monitor, if you have a library today and enable, and you, are, you don't have a platform and you're gonna monetize it, you can get premium dollars right now um, because everybody needs content. There's just so many outlets to serve. AVOD or fast, right? Free ad, uh, free ad supported streaming television is basic cable. It is a 24 linear stream um, and all the old product, everything that's still out there that you can get access to is airing uh, on those platforms and massive viewership. Um, that is a great business. That is what the future of cable is for sure. I completely agree with that. That is what it's gonna be. And that's where a lot of the advertisers are driven to right now is that world because we are watching it. You know, how many times you know, I have the TV on when I'm brushing my teeth at night and I got Seinfeld on in the background, even though I know it's on Netflix now or HBO Max or <laughs> I don't even know. Million but I have it on Channel 13 while I'm doing that. It's in the background and it's always there. Yeah. And that's the, for those who don't know, that's the story of what El Ray did. So El Ray was a basic cable network in 35 million homes. And when you think about cable and that cord cutting and cord shaving was uh, reducing subscribers by up to 10% a year, that's not a great place to be. If you are creating a platform for voices, then you're very limited in the basic cable uh, arena, right? So we shut down the channel, ended those deals and moved uh, El Rey to a fast channel, which is now on Roku, right? Uh, um, and then it will be distributed on all the other platforms out there, Samsung, Tubi, et cetera, because that's gonna give it its widest audience, its highest viewership, its greatest ability to make sure that those voices are heard. And that was a strategic shift because as we look forward, we wanna make sure we know, we're, we're gonna wanna be where the audience is. And that's why we made that strategic shift. Great. Thank you, guys. We've just had a, a great conversation about storytelling is still king and uh, the future is bright. We've still we've got so many opportunities for content creators to deliver their content. And of course, the content creation has been democratized. So we're making it easier and easier for a diverse audience to contribute to our industry. 
So I think that's a really positive uh, outlook. Thank you, everybody. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. This has been the Infinity Festival Hollywood podcast, a production of the Infinity Festival Hollywood and the Augmented City. You can find us on all major podcasting platforms and our website, infinityfestival.com. That's one word, infinityfestival.com. And there you'll find a full schedule, speakers, and map of this year's festival. We want to thank our presenting sponsors, Z by HP, NVIDIA, XLA, and our co-presenter Qualcomm for their support of this audio series. I'm John Gaunt, inviting you to Hollywood's Vinyl District this November for the Infinity Festival Hollywood 2022. Thanks for listening.